Hello and welcome to the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. My name is Joss Golden and I'm so happy that you're here. In this podcast series, I interview people who are passionate about parenting. We talk about many things to do with parenting and motherhood and explore the joys and challenges that we all face in our families. The aim of the podcast is to share more about aware parenting, to inspire us all on our parenting adventures, and to support us all to raise our children with more awareness, connection, and love. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. Today, I'm really, really excited because I get to speak to Robin Grill, who is one of my favorite authors and whose work I have followed for some time. So thank you so much, Robin, for making time to come and talk to us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Joss, and thank you for the invitation. So I'll just quickly introduce you. Robin Grill is a psychologist in private practice, an international speaker, a trainer, and a parenting educator. He is the author of three amazing internationally acclaimed books, Parenting for a Peaceful World, heart-to-heart parenting, and inner child journeys. He has delivered seminars, workshops, and training courses throughout Australasia, North America, the UK, and Asia. His experiential, skill-based, and informational parenting courses have helped many people to embrace parenting as a transformative personal growth journey, including me. During from 30 years clinical experience and from leading edge neuropsychological research, Robin's seminars and courses focus on healthy emotional development for children as well as parents while building supportive, cooperative parenting communities. He also conducts professional trainings in inner child journeying therapy for health practitioners. Robin's work is animated by his belief that humanity's future is largely dependent on the way we collectively relate to our children. Amazing. Yeah, I so agree with you. So I wonder if we might start right there, actually, Robin, because in in your book, the first of your books that I read was Parenting for a Peaceful World. And in that book, you talk a lot about how the way that we parent our children is so influential in terms of the future of the world. And you describe really beautifully this sort of collective, cultural, long history of violence against children and the relational trauma that results from that and the impact that that has on on all of us at, at a societal level. You use words like emotional deficit crisis in the world, and you describe how you know, parents, all of us, have been really just drained and, and undermined in our parenting as a result of, of this cultural pattern, I suppose, around parenting and, and the need for a cultural revolution. So would you like to share some more about that for our listeners? I would love to, although it's going to be difficult for me to figure out wh- where to begin with it because there are so many ways to enter into the building uh, that is that conversation. But I often find myself wondering... We don't think of that more often collectively. Why is there so little dialogue in social media and on all of the medias about the role that childhood plays in determining the kind of society we're going to have? And and it seems like there's a collective kind of a sleep about the, 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 the that childhood piece so that when we think of social activism or political activism because we we want a better world and you know each of us has some kind of an image perhaps of what the better world should be so there's the usual tried and tested for better and for worse or for worse the you know the what do we what do we go for legal reform or protesting in the street or 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 strapping ourselves to bulldozers or you know everybody has a way or you know petitions all look all of those things are are necessary but uh, what I want to say, and hopefully there's a lot more people saying it, is that reform, it perishes unless it, ground, it starts from the roots, from the soil up. And we've been creating the kind of society that we have, the way that a society collectively behaves against its neighbours as well as against uh, towards itself. We've been creating and shaping society through the way that we raise our children. It sounds like I'm stating the obvious. Usually when I say that, people will nod their head and go, well, of course we all know. Of course that. That's, that's true. Why don't we live as if that's true? Why don't we behave as if that's true? Why, do not, why don't we enact that truth consciously? We do it unconsciously, which leaves us open to haphazard. 
which I, I find dangerous. For instance, so my research for the first book, you mentioned Parenting for a Peaceful World, and where I looked at, uh, really, I was collecting other people's research. So there's a, a branch of history called psychohistory. Brilliant, in which they look at the way children were raised in cultures all over the world throughout history, throughout recorded history. Uh, we tried to even find patterns from before recorded history. That's what archaeologists can, can uh, in a study of DNA, etc. We can get some kind of a picture of how children were being raised. But of course, the more documented it is, the clearer it is. You know, why when we study history, we find out what, what psychopathic men do? We hear little about what women do and we hear zip about how, what, what is the lives of children like. And yet that is the silent engine of, of our destiny as, as psychohistorians find so clearly and so repeatedly so that it really bothers me that the most warlike societies knew, they said it out loud, if you want soldiers, if you want people that are obedient, if you want people willing to kill for you and die for you, that starts with hardening the kids with punishment, right? And deprivation, not just punishment, but also deprivation. They knew it. They said it out loud. Find out what the Aztecs did to kids, knowingly, deliberately, intentionally. Find out what the Spartans, the ancient Spartans did to kids, knowingly, intentionally, deliberately. Why aren't we doing the same in reverse? Everyone's heard of that Jesuit thing, give me the child for seven years and I'll give you the man. By the way, there were no women back then. There was just men, okay? <laughs> so uh, we, we hear that and we go, oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. And then we forget all about it and leave things as they are. And I think it's time for a children's liberation movement. Oof. Yeah. Worldwide, with every bit of the firepower that the women's liberation movement and the gay liberation movement had, but it irks me that in all of those extremely necessary movements, we forgot what happens to the most vulnerable and innocent. We've trampled that. We've forgotten. So that I think what happens is actually unconsciously intentional. Okay, I'm being a little bit mysterious. What do I mean by what happens? I'm talking about normal trauma, normative trauma, which is far more widespread. We've only recently come to recognize that battering children is traumatic, imposing sexual contact on children is traumatic, severely damaging, neglecting children, leaving them alone, sending them away, that that's traumatic. We've only recently come to recognize we've got this language of trauma. While we do that, there is almost like a willful shall I say? I don't know. Why, are we, why don't we talk with equal vigor about normal trauma, the, the, the kinds of traumas that are culturally prescribed? And I can give you some examples. By the way, the, when something very hurtful and terrifying has happened to you, when your society recognizes that that's traumatic, you will have at least a fighting chance to have some healing, that you'll have at least half a chance that when you speak up, someone someone out there might, uh, sometimes they don't, but someone out there might, might be the kind of witness that says, yes, you have a right to be upset about that. That shouldn't have happened. That's, that's horrible. And that opens up a healing journey. When your trauma is normalized by your society, not only there's no one to talk to, but you may not know it yourself, so that you live out the symptoms, the illnesses, you act out against others, you act in against yourself in all kinds of destructive ways, but you just think you're mad, you're ashamed. No one has validated that what happened to you that you thought was normal shouldn't have happened, and it was awful, and it was a developmental trauma. Mm. which is why this great body of trauma, developmental trauma, is culturally prescribed, culturally or at least culturally accepted. And I think that there's a kind of a quiet, unconscious intentionality in that. Some examples. So now I'm, 
you know, let's let's go from the abstract to the specific. And I can give you examples for much longer than the time that I have. Let's not make too many emotionally secure children. If we do, there will be, according because of the way that our um, economy is run, economic orthodoxy, uh, reliant on a staggering amount of unnecessary consumption. If if suddenly we were to make, to create, to to raise, to 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 nurture emotionally secure children by actually spending time, it doesn't. Love's not enough. Love is not enough. Love at a distance, with pressure, with with not enough time, is not enough. It's time. Love is has the effect required on our on 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 our growing children through direct interface they don't want us on the phone it's touch without touch this is how important touch is very little touch and a baby will die okay so it's time it's patience it's listening you can't do listening in a hurry okay so parents need to be supported to have time without time parenting ceases to be pleasurable it's a strain when parenting isn't pleasurable, our kids get, even if we hold them and give them all of the breastfeeding and, you know, gentleness that they could ask for, they still are drinking in our stress and it's not our fault or theirs. So what would happen if, if, if somebody were to wave a magic wand and tomorrow uh, a great critical mass of the world's children uh, responded to in a way that, that's, that does create emotional security? There would be an uh, economic apocalypse, rivaling probably exceeding the Great Depression of the 30s, because you you can't use someone that, that has an internal self possession. It's out of emotional insecurity, wounding that we we come into the thrall of abusive leaders, controlling leaders, seductive, charismatic leaders, who would not exist without without throngs of emotionally deprived in childhood people that go, I, I need a big daddy to look up to. I need a mommy who will protect me and, and tell me what to do and give me certainty. Our, our uncertainty tolerance has been seriously damaged by deep emotional insecurity. I say these things and I think, oh, gosh, most people might hear that. What do they think? Well, they think that I'm raving. Yeah, but I think your message is so empowering for parents because you're you're not. First of all, I think it's so important for people to be aware of this. Uh-huh. But then uh-huh. we you also give so many, so much support and advice and uh, encouragement and awareness and validation to parents for what what we can do instead and how we can do that. It's yeah. This is mainly my message is about what gets done to parents rather than what gets done to children, because yeah. we're seriously robbed seriously seriously robbed of of time without which love sort of stays in the cupboard love has to be delivered slowly in 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 face-to-face time or it doesn't reach and parents are seriously robbed of the right to enjoy parenting you know let's give some substance i'd like to take a few couple of minutes to give substance to what i'm saying examples of of how it could be and how it actually is in some places in Scandinavian countries there for some time now uh, when you're a parent that is paid like a profession very generously something like 75 80% of whatever you were earning before your child came to be and you're paid to spend 18 months with your child with an option of going to three years, right there you can relax and enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your time with a child. Hang out with friends and your child so that you feel supported and held in the village. Your time is your own. Don't worry. We, you know, your rent or mortgage are being paid. You can buy food and pay your bills because you're getting paid. And and the the society pays high taxes and invests in that because they. It actually costs, it bleeds a society economically much more with an A to Z of dysfunctions that happen when parents are sequestered away from their kids, strapped to the wheel of industry. 
in a way that's totally out of rhythm with what we've been designed for. So um, now to say that in some circles would raise howls of protest, but that is a religious patriarchal plot to put women back in the kitchen which does not explain why those Nordic countries have the highest representation of women in politics, in industry, and in academia. They're the most gender-balanced countries on the planet. If we want parents to have their career and have their time as parents, it costs money. Pay it. Very happily. Pay it. Pay all of it. Pay more. Very, very happily, because if you don't, you'll be paying twice as much. Okay, so what we know from the attachment research, well, you know, what do babies really, if we start to say what babies need organically, it shocks people that live in the modern West simply because we've been alienated from that. It -hmm. took scientists to tell us what everybody else knows. That to go and prove it. I mean, this is how backward we have become. You know, that the average age of weaning around the world is four years. Yeah. That children require breastfeeding psychologically, neuropsychologically, just as much as immunologically and nutritionally. It's the contact. It's the oral and ocular eye contact that does the work. Then if you start talking about the ever-changing biochemistry of breast milk, you could spend weeks. And it will take millennia before a laboratory can copy that. I mean, artificial formulas are a welcome addition to when breastfeeding can't happen, which on occasion it can't. So what a lifesaver. But it's far from that. The formula companies actively destroyed breastfeeding around the world. It was the most aggressive, uh, when you read the history of how that happened, it was the most aggressive marketing campaign probably in history and very, very, very clever. I remember my mum telling me when I was born in the early 70s that they would bring around the food in the hospital for the mothers and they would deliver the baby's bottles at the same time. Because it was expected. And I was born in South America and practiced in hospitals there because that's where you were born in hospitals because birth is an illness. Did you hear my quotation marks, please? I hope so. <laughs> so, because you can't do this with your fingers. <laughs> audio. So, you know, they were strapping women's breasts or injecting them with something to, to suppress breastfeeding and Everyone was thankful for that because breastfeeding is for pigs and and for peasants. And, of course, peasants are lesser humans, okay? And uh, my mother was laughed at, vilified by the doctors and the nurses in hospital because she chose to breastfeed. But, of course, in a society that's completely hostile to that, she lasted three months and she had to put up with being ridiculed. And that story People of my age, I was born in 1961, that's as common. That's what I call by normal, that's what I mean, normal trauma. It is traumatic. We survived that and we survived. Look, you know, most people of my generation severely underattached and undernourished. So we still have families. We're still good people mostly. We, you know, we get on with our lives. Not so fast. Hold it a minute. Yes, we're good people. You know, babies do bounce back, but they do not bounce back unchanged. They don't bounce back the same. They bounce back with adaptations. Bruce Perry, the leading child psychiatrist, traumatologist of this planet, I love the way he phrases it. Babies are not resilient. Please stop saying that. You can't bounce them around like a basketball or do what you like. Babies are not resilient. They are adaptive. Some of that I need to take responsibility. Bellish the quote. He said they're not resilient, they're adaptive. So they do bounce back and they'll keep smiling at you, but something's changed. The, 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 the resting baseline of the stress response is altered for life. 
the stress response is altered for life. Wow. Now that's going to have an impact on inflammatory responses, okay, in your body, cytokine storms, etc. It's going to have an impact on the quality of intimacy, what happens in, in, in the bedroom, in the lounge room. So we've got to we got to grow out collectively, grow out of thinking that, you know, traumatized people are the ones that are heroin addicts or, or you know, uh, or, or rob banks or I don't know what, or get drunk and beat their partners. Okay, yes, but much more than that. The suffering is much more than that. My whole life as a psychotherapist, I'd, I've never done crisis work. I've always worked with people whose lives are really going well so they can afford to pay for the therapy. Professionals. And the, the human, human suffering in, intimate, in the face of intimacy, that's when we come to grief. That's when the normal trauma intentionally delivered by our culture through a series of blows, okay, that's where it, the symptoms of that become revealed. Also in the way that we vote and also in the way that we treat Mother Nature, which right now, it's you know it's it's the healthy so-called healthy people in society that we we're driving our civilizations off a cliff. Yeah. So why are we calling that healthy? It's utterly insane. But we either vote for it or we kind of let it go and stay small, 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 small. So I reject that the word normal means healthy. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yes, I really love that distinction. It's really important just because it's something that happens everywhere to most people. It doesn't mean it's natural yeah. or healthy for us. And yeah. that's what the history of childhood teaches you because when you see what was normal 200 years ago and then you see what was normal 2,000 years ago, you'll have nightmares. But no one complained because it was normal. So somebody will have nightmares about what we're doing to children in 2023. They will. Our grandchildren will. They'll be looking at us and saying, how come you were still smacking in, in Australia? You were smacking kids? And you would say, oh, you're not allowed to smack your partner, and you're very righteous about that. But the person in the house that's 40 times more vulnerable than your partner, you smack them with impunity and call it you know, discipline. Discipline. <laughs> discipline. That's legal in Australia. It is legal in Australia. It is legal permissible and uncontested to have utterly unnecessary surgery in place of childbirth. Yes. When you look at natural childbirth, so medicine is good when an emergency is true because it'll save lives and thank you. Medicine in the face of health is butchery. And we don't get away from that scot-free, and we have to face it. Damage is done neurologically. Uh, I've worked with mothers who've come from, you know, so-called normal births, and they have reactions like rape victims, indistinguishable from, and it's quite devastating to listen to. But all the more so when you think, well, I don't know why I'm reacting like this. Everything's normal, and my child has got five fingers and five toes. Therefore, I'm an idiot. That's awful. Yeah. And if you go to the Primal Health Database, just Google Primal Health Database, very interesting website, and you can put in any keyword search, research anything, anorexia, schizophrenia, depression, violence, smoking, addiction, and, and the great body of peer-reviewed research from around the world that it'll show you, and, 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 it's, and the links of a, just a A to Z of dysfunction and suffering that connects with normal childbirth. Normal childbirth is sadly traumatic for, for parents, fathers, mothers, and, and, and babies. Yeah. Uh, the, not, when, not when interventions are necessary, but most of them are not. It's created with, yeah. with a culture of fear and a con culture that has completely circumcised mothers from their inner knowing and power. Yeah. yeah, that that's this is how we carve a particular kind of society that will follow a particular kind of authority, and that will sell ourselves short for with 
addictions to stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And screens and and it's dangerous now. So it's time that's why I'm talking kind of bluntly because I'm scared. I'm I'm so scared. We're in mm-hmm. trouble. I've got a daughter and I want her to have a world. And I, I want her to have what she would love, her dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for for sharing that and explaining that so clearly and so powerfully. I, I think it's really, really important, never more so than now, for us to understand the profound impact of everything that you've you've just shared. And one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book that I really love is some of the really simple ingredients that we can bring to our families to promote well-being for our children and for ourselves as parents too. And one of the key things that you talk about in that is listening. And you talk about how it describe listening as being the foundation of connection and that connection is the foundation of well-being. And you talk about listening with your heart as well as your ears and you talk about the importance of of how we offer this to our children and to ourselves. But I'd love to ask you a bit more about that because often it, it's really hard for us to listen. And and I love the way how you describe this in your books and how you also describe what listening isn't. What what would you like to say about that? Oh, that's that's thank you for asking that one. It's so important. If I define listening as listening with your heart, by that I mean that you know, I know when I'm really listening to you in that is in that somehow I'm going to feel moved by your presence, by the things that you demonstrate that you are feeling. Listening is not just collecting data. It's not a conversation in which one person says, you're not listening to me, and the other person says, yes, I am. I've heard everything you said. Wait, it's not. <laughs> just because I can repeat the words you said doesn't mean I'm listening at all. Listening, if it's not with the heart, it isn't listening. It's, it's collecting data. It's not listening, it's research. Completely different things. And if I, I could only say one thing, I would say let's, let's, let's try to learn that. It's in short supply. Did, did, you, did you feel heard in your family? I mean, I, I, uh, did you? No. I never had the opportunity to share how I felt. I never had the opportunity to express what I needed. And so, no. And that, that was just. Like you say, that's normal. It's so normal. I, I didn't either. I actually had opportunities, but they were pointless because I could start talking and someone else would talk straight over me. Or if I did get a sentence out, they'd try to talk me out of my feelings immediately or shame me for the way that I felt. So, you know, no, I was never actually listened to. Except unless if I'm bringing something home like, look, I got good marks at school. Oh, I'm all ears. Tell me all about that. But there was no effort to get to know me as a person, even though I feel like I was quite cherished, in fact. But there was no curiosity to find out. They were glad I was there, that's for sure, but there was no curiosity to find out who I was. And I find that with the majority of people I ever speak to. And does that deficit come without a cost? I really don't think so. We don't listen to each other. Because we, our role models are nothing to shout about. Uh, so, now babies aren't listened to. We still have the practice of, they don't like to call it controlled crying because that was, I remember being with the Australian Infant Mental Health Association and we put out a very strong statement about how damaging that is. So, they, they, <laughs> they rebranded it. I think, I forgot, what was the new name for it? I think it's sleep training now, isn't it? Even that is, I think, it, it reveals some of the uh, scary aspects somehow and manipulative. I think it was, control, it was called controlled comforting. <laughs> Cross out crying and putting comforting. It's exactly the same thing. You know, you can't soften a gun and make it smaller and it's still a gun. So what a, what a way to not listen. Baby is asking something. Crying is not this random noise that comes out through the hole in the top of your, you know, in front of your face. There, there's, a, there's a need expressed. Even if it's the need to, you know, just hold me while I cry because I need to express a lot of stress. Even if it's that, like Alita Salter said, it's not only that. It, it can be 12 different things, you know, or a number of different things. And, you know, as parents, we, you know, we're not 
it takes us a while to learn our, our baby's language and what does that cry mean? You know, lots of trial and error. Sometimes some people are more intuitive than others. We've all got our wounds and our, you know, learning a language, especially as a, as a first-time parent. And that's okay. Babies don't want to be left alone in distress. Even if you're offering the wrong thing. I wasn't hungry. I just, you know, I wanted to, yeah, I'm cold. Or, you know, I wasn't cold. I'm, 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 I'm sleepy. Or I'm not sleepy. I actually want to carry me around. I need, I want to see the world. I want to be stimulated. I want to be shown things, etc. You know, we get it wrong and trial and error. But when there's in the, when a baby's crying in the presence of someone who's interested and warm and, and making attempts at responding with obvious care and concern, that's a completely different equation. Being left alone to cry is the shock. We begin life by not being listened to. Mothers begin childbirth by not being listened to, by being trained to not listen to the bodily impulses, to move in a certain way or to make noises in a certain way, etc., etc. Don't listen to that. Lie down. As you, the more that you drill into this, the more that you see that our society is built on the bricks of non-listening. And then I speak about, you know, all of these things that are, you know, normal trauma as well as recognised, you know, legally recognised trauma. You know, the thing that makes the makes the difference between trauma becoming, you know, just a very painful experience becoming, a, from from it being a hurt to it being damage. We, I mean, we're extraordinary. It, it's it's quite jaw-dropping to consider the amount of hurt that human beings can live through and live well through. It becomes damage when there was no one to listen to how it felt. And when at the point at which you don't even listen to yourself anymore, because no one reflected back to you, that must have, that of course that hurt. That would have been frightening for you. There's no... Uh, validation at that point you stop listening to yourself now you got damage that's what makes the damage not necessarily the hurtful experience itself yeah so that no matter how many books you read about parenting and no matter how many books you write might i add about parenting <laughs> yeah sooner or later because you're a limited person and you've got your own scars and wounds and because you've got your own stresses in life and because you're broken in some ways, you will be a disappointment to your children. And they will suffer in your hands. It will happen. I did not live up to what I recommend in my books. And I knew I sooner or later I wouldn't. Neither did every other parenting author. Yeah. Do not look for experts. You will never find one. Every last one of us is wounded trying to heal on a journey. Therefore, we're not going to be as present as our beautiful children deserved. Well, I love how you shared that. I, I think yeah. that's such an important message for parents to hear. because It's again, critical. Yeah. It's critical message, without which you're going to drown in your own guilt. Yeah. When you're feeling that guilt coming up, have a look at other people also and how shared the guilt is. Then have a look at your own childhood. Then have a look at your mother's and father's childhood. Uh, then also have a look at how much, how well is your life supporting you to be a parent. Then tell me about guilt. Right? Yeah. Are you still are you still sure you want to go in front of the mirror and guilt yourself? So we get it wrong. We get it right. We some often utterly majestic as parents, but there's that bad day in which you will let your child down or scare them. Do not, please, do not um, wring your hands and with, you know, I've damaged my child forever because you're wasting valuable time. Yes, and I love what you've just said as well because you're, you're talking about the power, the transformative healing power of receiving listening. So regardless of, of how many times we make mistakes as parents, when we have this understanding about the yeah. power of listening – we can always support our children to heal for, from whatever we're putting them through or what, by accident exposing yeah. them to. 100%. It's what you do afterwards that makes a profound difference. 
giving your children a space in which to speak, giving the baby a place to cry and say, that was not okay. Giving the toddler a space to say, I don't like you because you did, you said that and you were scary. Giving, giving the adolescent a place to shout and say, I'm so disappointed or, or, I'm, or I'm embarrassed by you or whatever it is that they need to get off their mind. This is not a license for your kid to be abusive. You've got to have boundaries. But when they speak their own feeling, go to that, make a space. And even when you're feeling sorrow, express it. You know, your kids are not interested in you being the perfect parent. That's boring. Okay? Don't want to waste your time on that one either. You're not, so give it that up. Your kids are interested in you being a, a learning parent, humble and passionate about learning and learning from them, not just from the books, you know, being willing to venture into that honesty space with them. You know, that's even more than healing. That transforms, transforms the world. And I want to really, really underline that because I fear that all of the books that myself included and others have written about how to get it right for your babies have left a generation of parents terrified of damaging the kids and guilty about what they've already done and it's paralyzing. And uh, we've got to talk about what healing looks like. And listening is, 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 it's not that listening is the only thing, but it's the fundamental number one big thing. Good listening, listening with the heart. Yeah, that's, that's why you can have people that had the worst childhood in the most unspeakable, atrocious childhoods, but they find ways to be creative and contributive and loving because there's, there's been a lot of listening and a lot of crying and, and yelling and expressing our truth in front of caring, empathic witnesses. Your scars can give you wisdom. If we have a place to talk and emote, a place to emote. Yeah. And of course, the same is true for us as parents as well, isn't it? That that we can start to slowly heal some of those wounded parts of ourselves through receiving compassion and, and listening and, and to have our experiences validated. And I really loved your most recent book, Inner Child Journeys. And and how beautiful that is, and how that brings in the the fact that it's our children who are inviting us to heal in these ways. Do you want to say a little bit more about that process and how you support parents to do that? Yes, Josh. Thank you for asking about that book because the reason I felt compelled to write that book is it became clearer and clearer and clearer to me how much parents suffer when they get instructions on how to parent the right way, quote-unquote. It's not that the instructions aren't useful. They are. And we've got some pretty good instructions these days because science has come to agree with the human heart fantastically. Strong science, very strong science. However, the instruction books are not addressing the vital thing about our capacity to be present with our kids our capacity for, during the attachment stage, attachment, our capacity for healthy differentiation during the later stages, healthy boundaries, our attachment for truth-telling and all of that, a capacity for listening. And then do we, are we just left to feel ashamed or, or guilty because we can't meet the recipe? And that happens a lot. I did, you know, I, I, I was reading a lot of letters to the editor and not just in, in, in publications that I wrote for, but in many others. And yeah, parents are getting, there was a trend of parents feeling really beaten up and angry by, by the instruction books. Then I, I realized that there's not enough to address the parents' need. You know, I wrote Inner Child Journeys in response to that because that's all about what the parents' process it doesn't say a single word about what our children need. It's all about the parents' process. And I think it's, there's a beautiful order in this. It's just majestically designed. Our children, by just being who they are, from the moment of conception onward, they'll very forcefully press buttons in that place where you need the, your healing. So uh, where you've been most wounded, 
I mean, where you've been most supported is the place that comes naturally more easy for you to be present and a nourishing presence at that. Where you feel most challenged as a parent doesn't even come within a mile of being your fault. It's where you've been wounded. And until you really understand not just the fact of your childhood and what happened, but the way that it felt from the inside, the way that it felt from the inside, which our bodies remember, our heads often don't, but our bodies do. When you really get in touch with that, the next thing that happens is self-compassion. You say automatically, the words erupt through your lips, ah, no wonder I have these bad reactions. No wonder I find that hard. And you stop beating yourself up. Story is just necessary. Story brings forgiveness. Not the kind of forgiveness where you try to forgive yourself. That's conjured. This is automatic. It comes as a flood. It's beautiful. And your children are there to, to press and press and scrape against that very, very button because they will ask you most forcefully and get mad at you if you don't give it. They will ask you for the very thing that, that you were deprived of. So if, for a while, it feels like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, and there's, a, there's a temptation to blame the kids for that, for being, you know, spoiled brats or what, you know, all kinds of cultural platitudes that you, you've learned from grandma to, to chuck at the kids in blame and, and shame. But th- th- that's what happens. And if looked at in another way, you can look at that as things going wrong or you can look at that as an evolutionary process that's there to offer you a golden opportunity. This difficult conflict that I keep on meeting with my child in a pattern-like manner, what's it bringing up that is entirely mine and not my child's? If you just should dare to open that little door, a world of healing can come your way through your intentionality and your awareness. Ah, and then it's no wonder I have trouble having the, finding the capacity, the patience and the energy to be present because that's precisely where I was wounded. I wasn't picked up. I wasn't held. I wasn't listened to. I wasn't allowed to express myself. I was smacked a lot. I was, you know, manipulated into being my parents' counsellor. I was forced to grow up too soon. You know, whatever, whatever your story is. So my book is there to offer a kind of a, a, a manual for answering the call of your own inner child who, by the way, will never stop calling. (laughs) And when mood swings get ignored, your inner child maybe will cause inflammation and ultimately disease. Not your inner child, I shouldn't say that. But the unattended developmental wounds that still sit inside. You know, the unmet genuine developmental need of your inner child that once we listen to that and validate it there's a natural moving forward that happens that's very exciting it illuminates very clearly a developmental nutrient that we can give ourselves and receive as adults and don't worry we don't have to go and be breastfed again or anything like that it, but it, but there is there's a corresponding developmental nutrient that we can have that corresponds with the developmental wound that is being highlighted through the conflicts and challenges you have as a parent and you know that comes full circle to and and you just say yes to that inner need and then you look at your actual child and this space the energy comes more naturally to be present in fact you start enjoying your child more I'm very interested in, in the right for parents to have a, a journey that's joyous, enjoyable, and also fascinating. Not the journey of empathy, fatigue, and stress that, that gets produced uh, way too much in our neoliberal economic mess that we've created. Yeah. Mm. I love how you describe that, and it's such a powerful process. And I really love that it's it's so 
simple and it's not and you actually describe this in, in your book and you say that it, it's not that it has to be this long drawn out massively involved and expensive therapeutic process it can often just be quite a simple curiosity as to what in you is being touched and then giving that part of you some attention it's very empowering yes all of all of the above really because you know for some people look there's there's a, such a diversity some people do will seem to get a lot from being in therapy for years you know and and um because the diversity of reasons for personal growth and healing is just that great however i do want to do away with the idea that it has to be that or nothing and that it has to be psychotherapy or nothing because mm. it's not even true there's uh we're going to keep on finding and creating just ways you know even in dialogue with friends or even in dialogue with yourself as you sit in the train on the way to work you know there's, there's a the validation of the inner child's feelings and needs yeah. is already transformative you feel it in your chest you feel it in your gut your your next breath is a deeper one it's a, a release and a relief and a, and a kind of a thrill so yeah that's why the inner child process that i have in that book is like like a concertina where it can be very very small eyes open you know, just casual or in everything from that to a deeper thing with the eyes closed, a little meditation and reflection exercise to all the way to a more formal kind of a therapy process that is ideal when someone else is guiding you through it like a trained therapist and everything in between. And um, I think it's good to know that there there is choice. Yeah. Yeah. Then you have freedom. Yeah. And then yeah. you feel like you're you're in charge of your journey rather than being referred to places or having to feel like you're pathological which yeah. you're not you're responding adaptively to a to a true reality that happened to you yes mm. and i i often find working with with clients that because as children we weren't heard and because we experienced all of this pain and, and trauma and were left alone with it we learn to really dissociate, to shut off, to disconnect from ourselves. And so often as you start to explore a little bit of this in parenthood, parents often find themselves very, uh, really struggling to identify themes and experiences and events mm -hmm. that they might go in and, and explore more because it, it's just been so shut off from, from their reality and their understanding and their awareness for such a long time. How do you support parents to to reconnect with with their feelings uh, as part of that healing? Yeah, through the body, because you write about that amnesia, you know, narrative memory. So that's the memory in which you make a story and you can see a little movie in your head with chronology to it so that you know that this happened, then that happened, then after that, that happened the parts of the brain that organize that aren't really mature until they're about two, three years old. And that's why most people have this belief that they can't remember anything before that age. And then on top of that, there's traumatic amnesia, which is entirely real. I've experienced it for me. You know, that whole thing of recovered memory that is very controversial. It's controversial because it's very badly mishandled and abused actually there's a lot of implanted memories that happen from therapists that are over eager however i've i've remembered something in my when was it in my 50s really clearly and uh, that distinct feeling that oh my god i've always known this but it's never been in my consciousness up and up since when it happened because i blocked it i know what that feels like and uh, it comes back as a recognition and uh, with all of the, you know, the visuals. So that's narrative memory. Narrative memory is also very vulnerable to distortion. So you think that thing was on the left, it wasn't, it was on the right. You think it was that person, it actually wasn't, it was another similar person. So that, that's, it's, it's, it's problematic along those lines. However, the body memory, sign, uh, neuroscientists call it implicit memory. 
is uh, the body can't lie. It can't produce a lie. And body memory, the hub, the organizing hub in the brain, the amygdala, that's that's fully functional by the third trimester in the womb. So at the very latest, we have body memory in three months before birth. So life does not begin at birth. I mean, conscious life, conscious aware life does not begin at the act of birth. It's a bit before that. A body, body memory, implicit memory is you remember everything that you have felt, so sensations and emotions, sometimes alongside the actual narrative memory, often without it. You know, that's a little disturbing because it means that you're, you, you can re-experience threads of old feelings that can date all the way back to earliest babyhood and even a little before. Uh, and everything in between. You can experience threads of that or sometimes be flooded by those feelings and sensations. And they tell you the truth about a lived experience. But uh, without the narrative memory to go with it, and because we've been trying to bury that because it was scary, perhaps, or because society tells you it has, it has no value and no meaning, for all of those reasons, you know, we get seduced away from self listening you know all this kind of archival footage of who we are and where we've gone is right in front of us inside us it's just that we're not opening the book so that's how we help people in you know in, in paying attention to what your body's saying yeah and your body there's an interesting way that you can be the interpreter which shuts me out if i try to manipulate You've made sure that I can't because you're listening inside and you're waiting inside for words that match the feeling in your gut or in your chest or in your throat or in your jaw. And it takes a little time, it takes practice, it takes listening. But it's a beautiful that focusing process is one of the most empowering things I know. And you, you get intimate with yourself. You get to know what you're a veteran of what you have survived, what you have lived. And with that, even more importantly, what you need, because a lot of the wounding, the way that what you're left with is that you stop expressing your needs, you stop feeling your needs, you stop noticing your needs, you cut off at the throat, and then your relationships suffer the result of that. We, we're surrounded by people and yet still empty, lonely, desperate, and insatiable. Once we connect with what the need and give that words, we mobilize, we move forward. Then we step into a new world. The world feels different. By the way, the more that we feed the inner child, the more that that releases the inner adult to we become more generous to others, we become more caring of others and more contributive to society, which goes contrary to the popular belief and the belief of behaviorists that if you feed the, you know, if you meet the child's dependency needs, they're going to stay dependent forever. And it's, it's the diametric opposite of that. A well-nourished baby will soon be saying, Mum, can you walk away from me, please? You're in my light. They'll, they'll push you. They start finding it very thrilling. They'll still, you know, run back to you, but they'll find their thrill doesn't come from you, but from their own connection with self and exploration of the world and they won't give that up for nothing so uh they they seek healthy separation and differentiation to the point that often mums feel a little bit rejected by their kitties but but feed the dependency and you get true independence and autonomy Yes, you described mm. that really beautifully in heart to heart parenting that process around healthy separation and and how to support that yeah yeah. Yes. That's the other other hand. There's attachment and then there's differentiation. But that's a longer, longer story. Yes, and that's mm. a, a delicate dance, isn't it, for us as parents often? It's a pathway. It's a journey. First this and then there's that. I guess it's a balance. 
So uh, I'm aware of the time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I would love to ask if there's anything else that you would want to share or explain that we haven't touched on today. I mean, I know that trying to condense all of your work into one hour's conversation is probably a little ambitious. Is there anything else you'd like to explain or share? Let me think. What would people like to hear me talk about? You know, in in our conclusion, I wonder what what would people like to hear, do you think? Your listeners. Well, perhaps it would be most helpful just for you to to go over again some of some of the things that you think are the really key ingredients for supporting emotional well-being in our children. You've talked about listening. What else would okay. you add to that list? Loving the parents. Yeah. Coming back to not not attachment and the laws of attachment, but the capacity for attachment. You know, there are two main things that interfere with their capacity for Rob rob our energy and a capacity for attachment you know i've already spoken about one which is unexamined uh, deprivations from our own attachment history our stress unexamined because once you know that then you can mobilize and you can make sure that you're well nourished but the other main main factor is the nuclear family solution which is a crisis just by the fact of its existence because um we just not that's not who we are as a species and you ask any anthropologist who've been busy studying cultures from since we became homo sapiens to now all over the planet it's four attachment figures it's multiple attachments when I say multiple, not random, not any nice person, because babies, attachment works through specificity. It's your voice, your face, your smell, your touch, and it's it's peculiar to you know the identity of this person. But we need more than two, so that about one nanosecond after mum or dad start to look tired, the the, the tag teams there. In, in societies that parent cooperatively, as we have done through history, you know, they, haven't, they haven't sliced off mums and dads and, and, and kind of interred them in a box. They've, 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 we're still interlaced and interconnected with, with our community. In those societies, postnatal depression is unknown. A lot of you know, exhaustion is unknown. Well, parental strain and exhaustion. You know, they, parents get frustrated, they get tired, all of those things, but then someone else comes because it's not just about the parent. So being the most important job in the world, it's also the job that, that requires the most support to the point that if a young person comes to me and says, guess what, I want to have a child, I'd say, well, that's, that's very exciting. Who are going to be – who's your support team? Who are the – I love this – anthropological word allo parent there's parents and allo parents so you know inches behind the parents there needs to be someone else it could be if you're getting on with your grandparents with your parents or the child's grandparents if you if you're on a similar enough page because a lot of people in this generation are going oh my god my grand grandparents i can't agree with it They, they keep on telling me not to pick up my baby so often they keep on telling me to smack the kids, you know, I can't bear it. So it's not going to work. But um, extended family, yes, when it's working. Uh, otherwise, we need, to, we need to create our tribe actively, actively, actively. If you don't think you need it, do it anyway because you do. <laughs> you do. But I don't get that tired. I've got three kids. I don't get that tired. Well, that's a small thing to ask. What about joy, pleasure, enjoyment? Joy. I'd like for you a little more than just everything's okay. Just because you're not getting cranky and screaming at the kids. Come on, you can ask for a little bit more than that. You're on a planet and you're not here for long. Your, your neurology is built for, for a joy, peak experiences of joy, deliciousness, pleasure, and occasionally bliss, an ecstatic uh, unity consciousness. All right. 
uh, let's let that land where it lands. But being being in connection is is, is what that's about. So who's who's going to be your tribe? People that your baby and little kids feel so safe with, so comfortable with, that when you're tired, go for a walk alone. Stop being a mum. Stop being a dad. Go get on the hammock. Uh, sleep. Read a book. Go dance. Forget everything. I don't know. Do some work. If if you if you're craving doing some work, um, have adult conversation with grown-ups because you, you, you all day talking with a three-year-old, don't be too surprised if that starts to drive you insane. Okay, don't be too surprised. Yeah. Go, you know, go fulfill that. I've, I've had people from those kinds of cultures coming to visit Australia and, and they say to me, hey, how come parents in Australia look so tired? They look kind of grey. What are you, what's what's being done to them? They're shocked at what they see. So we 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 are meant to do this together. Yeah. Think more like four attachment figures, not just two. If you're a single parent, all right, well, find three more people to back you up. You're still number one. That's you know you're gonna be number one. Your baby will prefer you to anyone, uh, but three backups. Yeah. Yeah, so important, isn't it? It's just so obvious when we look back at our human history, what 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 we evolved to live with in order to thrive in our lives. Yeah, I'd use so- bigger words. I would use bigger words than important because we 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 everyone goes, Oh yeah, you need a village. Of course, that's you know, but we don't go get the village. So we kind of need a jolt of electricity to say, This is it's not that it's important, it's not negotiable. Without it, someone's going to get hurt. Firstly, you. So you don't start without this. And then there's going to be a great moment of confrontation because reaching out for a tribe, we know we're, we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, we're worried, you know, what that dance is. We're not used to it. I don't know how difficult that can be. I understand that. You mm. don't just go to someone nice across the road and say, do you want to make a tribe, you know? <laughs> And so gathering around, it's helpful to gather around shared values. You know, when you find parent groups that are formed out of the hospital, sometimes can go fine, but it's a bit of a roulette because it's random. Whoever else was there on the day or whoever happened to go to your birthing class or something, maybe you get on with them, maybe you don't. So when there's a more of an intentional gathering that's, based on three or four kind of core values that you're all really, really keen on and really care about, there's a much greater chance that there that there'll be less friction and more friendship and collaboration and uh, that they're going to be your natural people. Mm-hmm. And um, when you need your tribe most, that's when you, you know, don't make it. Don't choose the most challenging tribe. Mm-hmm. Don't go climb Mount Everest. You can do that workshop some other time. Be with people that are on your side, whether you're on their side. Make Find ease. Oh, my God, that makes a difference. Cannot begin to tell you. And I think for me there's nothing more delicious than seeing parents who are enjoying parenthood because they're plugged in to a source of energy and power, which is people. Call it what you will, community, tribe, parenting group. Family, grandparents, call it what you will, plugged into people, which includes time alone. Mm-hmm. Even if it's 10 minutes here or there, time alone to hear your own voice, breathe in and. Beautiful yeah. invitation. Thank mm. you so much. And the last thing that I always ask my guests is if you could go back now to the beginning of your journey as a parent. What do you? What would you have loved to have known then that you know now, that would have just made this journey more enjoyable, more easy, more clear? Mm, I think there's a few things. Do you know the one that springs to mind right now? And this is not one of the great overarching ones, but it's important nonetheless. I didn't know anything about elimination communication. 
I didn't know anything about baby sign language. And in many ways, it's okay because we we really tried hard to have easy time at home. I, I cut my work in half. It was financially bad. Don't regret a millisecond of it. We got to have lots of time on the floor. And, and you'd learn to listen because you just just by exposure. But I'm intrigued about baby sign language and, and, you know, would it have made a difference? I don't know. I'm still intrigued about it. But elimination communication, or, you know, also that wasn't that bad because our baby tended to go and shit outside in the garden and the garden loved that. And then, you know, we would just kind of run a little hose on her and everybody was happy with that. However, you can't always do that. And there were times when changing a nappy – so, you know, a lot of the time she was fine with that, but sometimes, yeah, it was really annoying to her and she didn't want her little body messed with. That wasn't nice. I wish I'd known about elimination communication. Hadn't even heard of it. <laughs> and I remember that frustration where, God, why didn't you tell me this before? I didn't see it anywhere, you know. And I'm sure there's more if you gave me more time to think about it, but there's, there is that sort of generational regret that a bit happens to a lot of people. Damn it, I was born a little too early. And so it is. So it is. That's part of, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a pain that has a meaning to it. It means that the world has progressed without me. And it's going to continue to do that so that it would be a really good result for society if my great-grandchildren, should I have any, if they look back and go, well, that was a bit backward, what Robin was, was doing back then. You know, he tried hard, but gee, it was a, bit, a little bit backwards. We, 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 we found better ways for that now. And yeah. much as that's going to sting me if I'm floating around as a ghost, I, I, I think that would be a good result. Evolution does not just stop. There's no pinnacle. We're not the greatest bloody thing. And, and just because we're attachment parents now, whatever you want to label – we're not the pinnacle of evolution. Our, our grandkids will do it much better than us. That stings, doesn't it? It's, it just stings. But there's so much hope in that as well. I think so. Yeah. <sighs> I, I actually think it's inevitable. Mm. Evolution doesn't stand still as long as our species are still uh, permitted to remain on the planet. Yeah. Mm. Wow, thank you so much. What a powerful conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to you speak and to share all of your knowledge about so many aspects of this and the profound significance that we can make as parents to our children, to ourselves and, and to the world around us. And I really know it's going to be incredibly helpful for people to to hear you speak. So thank you so much for generously giving your time to to share in this way. It's it's such a pleasure, and, and um, thank you, Joss, very much for the opportunity. You know, if it wasn't for you and people like you asking me to speak, then I don't really know what I'm thinking all that well. So, uh, and it's a lovely, lovely. Like, I, I just consider it a profound privilege to be allowed to share my feelings and my experience about this material with people. That regrettably I won't get to necessarily see or meet. But it's a great, great privilege and I thank everybody for listening. Thank you for joining me on Aware Parenting Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more, please visit my website www.awareparenting.com.au and follow me on social media at Aware Parenting with Joss. I wish you much connection and love on your parenting adventures. Mm-hmm.